Thank you for the opportunity and the privilege to bring the word of the Lord to you today. I, I believe I have that. I believe I'm, I feel very confident that this is a word for the hour. First of all, let me just start by saying this. You, you should have gotten a text yesterday through SK Notify that said, Hi, and it put your name in there and said, This is Pastor Philip. Would you give me a couple minutes? Remember that text? Well, that confused some folks because I got calls and I got... Uh, people texting me that said, did you really send this? Is this a, is this a scam? Uh, should I touch this or not? So <clears throat> what, what I've discovered this week was how to put your first name in there. So we may even do that for emails and things. We'll, we'll make it personal. So I, I hope that didn't scare you too bad uh, and that you were able to see the little video about today uh, encouraging you to be here and participating in all that we uh, have going today. We're always trying to upgrade our skill set, upgrade our ability to reach out well, communicate well, and I hope that didn't backfire too much on you yesterday to confuse you. Well, I want to ask you a question. Simple question. Some of you are going to know the answer so fast. Where will you be 40 years from today? Little little arithmetic going on in your head? Okay. Some of us will be here. Most of us, a lot of us, I'm going to be on streets of gold dancing around. I'll be in the heavenly realm. I'll be in my eternal reward. Will you? Are you confident of that? I don't think I'm going to be on the planet in 40 years, but we're praying and believing and we're working to the end that living waters will be here in 40 years and prospering. And as you know, Living Waters Church, we've reached a milestone this year. 1981, the church was started. We're now in 2021, and we're celebrating 40 years of ministry in Shelby County, touching Franklin County and Anderson County, Spencer County, Henry County, sometimes even to Jefferson County. We touched a, we're a regional church. We're also a community church. And God has blessed this work. And as Pastor Stephen said just moments ago, uh, beginning on Sunday, November the 7th, we're kicking off a three-week celebration. You know, God had the Israelites celebrate. They had festivals, and they'd take the week off. And they did that several times a year and come together and eat and, and have music and worship and, and enjoy one another. It was party time. So I hope you're getting your heart ready to come and celebrate the three weeks we have uh, in front of us here very shortly. But just a few weeks ago, I was having my morning visit with the Lord, and I was reading in Hebrews chapter 3. And I want you to take your Bibles right now or your phone or whatever you have, and I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 3. Find that quickly. And let me just insert right here. There are studies now that say that working off of a paper copy book has a tactile uh, thing for uh, human beings that the, that the digital doesn't have. And I'm finding that for myself. I really enjoy holding the book, here in this case the Bible or whatever I'm reading. Now, I still see read some digital things, but there's something about having this in your hand that makes the difference. You might want to try going back to your Bible. And if you're in the habit of reading digital, I have been, I have been, but I'm finding myself going back. Would you stand with me right now? As we, in, uh, we read this together, I'm going to read the entire chapter. It's only 19 verses. And uh, like Joel used to say, I've got this lunch packed really tight, and so when I unpack it, I'm going to have to be talking fast. You listen fast, okay? Here we go. Hebrews 3. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all his house. For this one 
has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. Randy Winters is a contractor. He builds houses, and he builds beautiful houses. But the house doesn't get the glory that Randy gets. It's the builder that gets more of the glory and the praise. And Jesus Christ, here we are told, is the builder of the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward. But Christ as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope, firm to the end. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in rebellion, in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me and tried me and saw my works forty years. Therefore I was angry with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end, while it is said, and then he quotes again, Today if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For you who having heard rebelled, indeed was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses, Now with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Lord, we just pray that you'll bless the reading of your word, the hearing of it, and as we open the the thoughts that we believe you have want to express today over this, would you give us ears to hear eyes to see, hearts to receive, and feet to put in action to what you call us to do in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, and you can be seated. The writer of Hebrews is quoting Psalm 95 within that text, and he quotes it in a greater part in the middle, and then quotes a portion of it again at the end, making it clear to the reader that It is to those who were in the wilderness, coming out of the exodus into the promised land. So that is the context of what we'll be speaking about today. And the title of my message is Perseverance, Cross Over to Conquer. Perseverance, Cross Over to Conquer. Now we're going to take an in-depth look at the Israelites as they faced uh, the first attempt to go into the promised land. And and they did make two. They did make two. Actually, the first attempt was pretty weak and pretty tepid, as you know. Why they failed to go in on the first try and discover how this specific passage and story affects us here at Living Waters right here, right now. Now, when my attention... Uh, was aroused. Uh, forgive me, I've got a page that got mixed up. So let me let me start here. The number forty is a significant number in the scriptures. It crops up about 146 times, and generally means a period of testing, trial, or probation. It also can seem to indicate a crossing over, if you will. A line of demarcation, imaginary as it might be, is set up so that there's a previous time and now a soon-to-be time, a time yet to come. Here's some examples in the Word of God. Noah and his family were saved by the ark that he built under God's direction. The waters, floodwaters fill the earth from the heavens and gush from the depths of the earth, and it rained 40 days and 40 nights. And when that time frame was over, Moses stepped out in the 
Old had passed away. Sin had been, uh, uh, the sinful people had been annihilated from the earth, and now a new era of time. During Moses' life, he lived 40 years in Egypt and 40 years in the desert before God selected him to lead his people out of slavery. Actually, Moses had three periods of 40s, 40 years in Egypt, 40 years on the backside of the desert, and then 40 years wandering in the wilderness. So he had three sets of 40s in his life. Moses was also on Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights on two separate occasions. He was up there to receive God's law. And then he sends the spies for 40 days into the uh, promised land and these Israelite, to check out the Israelites' inheritance. The prophet Jonah powerfully warned ancient Nineveh for 40 days that its destruction would come because of its many sins. They repented after 40 days and a new God had stayed his hand in a new time. Revival had broken out in Nineveh. The prophet Ezekiel laid on his right side for 40 days to symbolize Judah's sins. Elijah went 40 days without food and water at Mount uh, Sinai. Jesus was tempted by the devil not just three times, but many times during his 40 days and 40 nights of fasting in the wilderness. And when he came out of that, his ministry began a new time. He also appeared to his disciples and others for 40 days after his resurrection from the dead, and then he ascended to the Father, and the Holy Spirit comes. So a new uh, era of time. The number 40 can also represent a generation of man. Because of their sins after leaving Egypt, as we read here today, God swore that this generation of Israelites who left Egyptian bondage would not inherit uh, Canaan. The children of Israel were punished by wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years before a new generation was allowed to possess the land of promise. Jesus, just days before his crucifixion, prophesied the total destruction of Jerusalem. Forty years after his crucifixion, uh, the uh, army of the Roman Empire destroyed the entire city and burned the beloved Solomon's temple to the ground. The Bible was written by 40 different people, 40 people across centuries of time writing a unified message of salvation through Christ. So when my attention, reading Hebrews 3 that day, I saw the word 40 years. And we have lived with the words 40 years now for months as we've talked about our celebration. It got my attention. And I knew then that God wanted to speak to us out of Hebrews 3. I didn't know at the time what the message would be exactly, how it would unfold, but as I've meditated, studied, and gone before the Lord over these last three or four weeks, I wish I, I, wish I could say it was 40 days, but uh, it's, it's not. Uh, but I think I do have the Word. Now, I'm going to encourage you, if you're a note-taker, please do. If you're not, find a way to take some notes, even if it's in your phone. I believe God is going to speak to you not only through things I say. I believe he's going to make application to personal things in your life. He's going to put his finger on some things that you need to deal with. And he's going to challenge you and encourage you today about some of those matters. So would you just really listen, not just to me, but to the Spirit of the Lord as he speaks to you. So why is this passage so important to us right now? Actually, I believe the entire book of Hebrews is super important to us right now. Hebrews was written to what we might call today Messianic Jews. They were uh, believers in Christ, but they were suffering persecution because of their faith in Yeshua. They were being marginalized, tortured, some even killed for having faith in the Messiah. Some were tempted to fall back to Judaism and the law, because it was just safer there. They could get along better if they just go back to what they knew. And so the writer of Hebrews is basically preaching them to them this huge sermon. Now, it's called an epistle, a letter, but I see it as a beautifully arranged sermon on the preeminence of Christ, his superiority over everything. Again, what he said about him being the the, the one to receive the honor 
uh, over Moses and his house. Yes, Moses was a great servant, but there was one greater who established Moses, who built the house of Moses, who built the house of the law, who built all the traditions and, and festivals and everything that they had believed in. There was one greater than Moses. It has to go back to the Messiah. So he's superior over anything that they have ever held in esteem as to their faith and their religious beliefs as Jews. That's why the writer mentions, again, that Moses is not the most superior, that Christ is. And over and over again, the writer urges them to persevere in their hope and not to throw away their confidence, because this is the living evidence that they truly have become, what he says in the first verse, partakers of Christ. Hebrews 11.1 1 is probably one of your favorite passages. Faith is the evidence of things hoped for. Their faith in Jesus, their hope in him, was the living evidence. The living evidence. That's your living evidence. That you have become a partaker of Christ. Thus, we as believers, many centuries removed from the writing of this epistle and the strain of life that they were under, we are now needing that same encouragement, needing that same empowerment of this message to persevere, to be steadfast in our faith and keep our eyes on Jesus, not allowing discouragement, distraction, the devolution of our love and zeal for Christ to take over our vibrant faith and resulting good works. Everything in this world is trying to break that down. We must not allow the chaos of this world with its diversion and disturbances pull us away from a dynamic faith that results in our living our life's calling in the kingdom of God to the fullest. We cannot let anything keep us from maintaining our assurance in the wonder of our salvation in Christ. Nor can we shrink back from the work of this ministry. Listen to some other verses found in this same book of Hebrews that clarify further the intent of the writer to these Jewish believers. Hebrews 2.1. And I'm going to have them up here just for a moment. So if you're taking notes, just get the, the reference. Don't try to write that down. Hebrews 2.1, for this reason we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away. And I'm telling you, I'm seeing people drift. I am seeing some people drift. And we cannot do it. Hebrews 6.11-12, and we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Sluggishness there meaning lethargy, lifeless, inert, couch potato. We cannot be that in our walk with God, not in this day. Hebrews 10.23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he promised, he is faithful who promised. Hebrews 10.35, Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which is a great reward. Throw away there means to discard as something used a few times and you find it no longer desirable. No longer useful. You cannot throw away your confidence in the work of God in you. And there's a great reward for those who don't. Hebrews 12, 1, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. That's one of my favorite verses right there. And it charges me every time I read it and think of it. And sometimes it is the, God's finger in my back to say, don't let that thing entangle you. Don't lose the momentum you have. So let us run with endurance. Let us persevere. Let us cross over, we're going to see as we go along here, to conquer. So, as I've said, this passage in Hebrews is reminding Jews who have declared Jesus as Messiah 
that there's no going back to a former life. There's no going back to Judaism as they knew it. Christ is far superior to Moses and the law, and they must persevere and go forward, not backward. What is behind, what, and he's saying to them, what is behind you will not bring you the life that Jesus gives. And I want you to think about that, where we are. I think we're at a scene. I think we're, we finished 40 years, and I, I don't believe you have to have, be a rocket scientist to see we are at a seam as a church. And we had glorious times. But I think God is saying to us, you cannot look back and wish for something back there. There's a future and a hope and a purpose, and it may be old things renewed, or it might be altogether new things. Thank you, Joshua. Amen. I want you to hear that now. Maybe that's hard to swallow. The unbelief of the Israelites of the Exodus came before the 40 years that are referred to in Hebrews 3. And before I say any more, let me say unequivocally, so that you have no thought about this, that I am not comparing their unbelief and wilderness wandering with anything about the previous 40 years. I am not. Church life at Living Waters here has been life-giving, has been good. We've known God. We've partaken of Christ. But there's more. There's different, perhaps. There's something out there that God wants to take us through and to, and we might have to kill some giants to get there. Are we ready to war? And be at our best and not be sluggish and inert, but ready to go. I think what I have been called to do today is to proclaim a warning. A shot across the bow, if you will. A siren sound that cautions against possible spoliation of what God has built here. Should any of us be drawn away and enticed by any form, listen, any form of unbelief. And that can come in many forms. It can come in the form of retirement. It can come in the form of saying, I just don't think I want to do that much more now. I've already paid my price. Let somebody else do it. We cannot be drawn away and enticed by anything that besets us. All this stuff that we see in this world now, and what's wearing us out as the body of believers, and it tries to wear me out. It does. I'm tired sometimes. We cannot let that weigh us down. So let me interject something that I found very interesting at this point. I hope you see that there's, there's some truth right here for us right now. Scholars believe that it took 47 days for Israel to come to Mount Sinai. We got that slide up there. The Red Sea crossing was on the 25th day of the journey. So they left Egypt and they arrived at the Red Sea. And during that 25-day period, Pharaoh decides, I, I don't like having them gone. I want to go get them back. So they're at the edge of the Red Sea, and as we know, they cross it on dry land. God does a mighty miracle there. It took 22 more days to journey to Mount Sinai. This is where they held up for a while. And that brings us to 47 days after leaving Egypt, they arrive at Mount Sinai. Moses goes up on the mountain a couple of times. You know all the stories there. Uh... He gets all kinds of laws, more than just the Ten Commandments. He gets everything they needed to govern themselves and to, to know what it was like to worship God, how to do it. They, he got the pattern for the tabernacle there. They came back down and they began to build that. 
So they encamped there for 11 months in order to receive the book of the law and other matters of governance and worship that the Lord had been telling Moses. It was going to take some time for them to get organized and prepared to go into the promised land. So they take 11 months. So just about a year into the journey, God then tells Moses, I want you to go up to Kadesh Barnea and prepare to go into the land. Deuteronomy chapter 1, I don't think I have that up here, but you can go back and look at it, talks about the amount of time it takes to travel from Mount Sinai, and and there it's called Mount Horeb, same thing. It, It mentions in the first two verses how many days it takes to journey from Sinai to Kadesh Barnea. And it says it took 11 days to shift about 3 million people up there. And from there, 12 chosen men, extraordinary leaders in their tribes, did reconnaissance, going into Canaan, traveling almost to the Syrian border. I have a map of that. Let's look at that, a couple of maps. So they come in at the extreme south of what we now know as Israel, and they, they work their way up the west side of the Dead Sea, the Jordan River, the Sea of Galilee, and so forth. And they go all the way up to Lebo Hamath. And that's a 250-mile journey. And they turn around and come back. And they cover 500 miles in 40 days. Isn't that amazing? Twelve guys. These were the leaders of the tribes. And up they went. So the second map I have is going to show you, and now the color gets washed out a little bit, but there's different shades of colors in there, all the different locations of the Amalekites and the Moabites and the Kenites and the Philistines and the Jebusites and Ammon and Amorites and so forth. They had to trek all the way through all that hostile country. These were pagan people that lived and encamped in, in these territories. And God was saying, I want you to go in there and I want you to take every one of them out. And I'm going to give you that land. So the spies come back. Is it any wonder? Is it any wonder they said, ah, ten of them go, I don't think we can do this. I mean, these people, this is massive. There's thousands of them, and some of them are as big as giants, and we look like grasshoppers in our, in our sight. We feel like grasshoppers. So this day comes when... God says to Moses, I want you to go to Kadesh Barnea, and I'll take you into the land from there. And from, from that point is where he was going to take them in. If you go up above the Dead Sea, which is the wa- big water thing at the bottom of it, Jericho is right above it. That's where they eventually went in. But if they had gone in down here, they would have gone in not having to cross any water. not having to. They could have gone in right there. So it it took a total of 51 days from their departure at Mount Sinai. So they have 11 days. If we could get that slide up there, please. They have 11 days where they arrive at Kadesh Barnea. They take a 40-day rest while the spies go in and come back. So a total of 51 days after leaving Mount Sinai. And I'm going to call this the true beginning of the conquest. Them coming out of Egypt, going to Sinai, staying there for 11 months, they weren't, they weren't warring anything. It wasn't about to happen yet. It took some time. But 51 days turns into 40 years. And it was a long, difficult 40 years before they could actually enter in to all that God had promised. And I'll just show you again, verse 17 of Hebrews 3, who's quoting Psalm 95, The writer says, now with whom was he angry 40 years? No question, we understand. Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? As I said again earlier, ours has not been a wilderness wandering. It's been far from that. Not at all. But we are at the precipice of another 40 years. And the challenges for us as a church are no less than the first 40 years 
of living waters. The good thing is we have been here and we've got a location and we we don't have to go through some of the things we did then. But there are new challenges for us today. So it bears the question, what is next? What is next? Don't get scared. I'm not going to tell them what's next because I don't know. I do know this. We know pieces. We think we, we know some pieces of what, what's next. God's still developing that in us, but here's what's next. God's best. That's what's next. Based on what I, th- I know of the Father and His Word, this Word, I think we can come close to what, what God wants. Now, there are certain things that I think He'll highlight things he will draw our attention to. But he's going to have some things he wants Living Waters to do. We represent him in this community, in this county. And we influence other counties. So there are, there are new vistas for us to come to. But we will not experience it. And this is my warning. We will not experience it if we look at the giants in the new land, if we murmur and complain if we strive with God and with each other in unbelief, if we wish for leeks and garlics of some past experience, some bygone year, good years, yes, but those years are now in the history books, and we must look forward to the new things God has in store. I want to talk next about this. Do not tempt God, but test Him. Let's look real quickly at when the verse 9 of Hebrews 3. The author says, When your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works 40 years. The word tempted here means to risk provoking. Have you ever said to your children, don't tempt me, don't, don't tempt me, because they're provoking you a little bit. And you're offering them a warning. You're going to, be, you're going to have some pain. You're going to have to suffer a little bit if you tempt me any further. And you're saying, I don't like being provoked. Do the right thing. What does testing mean? Testing means uh, a procedure that's intended to establish the quality, performance, or reliability of something. We talk about quality testing and in merchandise or a car, let's say. We test that to see that there's a quality to it. And it's going to perform like we want. God says, don't tempt me. Test me. Just test me. I show you an example of that in Scripture in Malachi 3.10, where God's trying to get the Israelites to trust him with their sustenance, their finances, if you will. And in Malachi 3.10, you know this verse well. I don't think it's on the screen. We'll say that God says through the, to, through the prophet Malachi, Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. See if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. Test the quality of what I've said. Test the assurance of what I said. Try it. It'll God is exhorting us in Malachi to test him by our faith. Obey him and trust him with your finances in this case. Other things in the word, God says, test me in this. Give God a chance to prove to you that he is faithful to care for you as you bring your tithe into the storehouse. But here in the experience of the Israelites, they they weren't testing God. They were tempting God by their unbelief. God calls it a temptation coming to him from them. By their hard-hearted murmuring, their complaining, by their distrust in God and in the man God chose to lead them, Moses. They were getting on God's last nerve. You ever said that to your kids? You're getting on my last nerve. Maybe you got on your mom and dad's last nerve. That takes a lot because God is long-suffering. Impatient. He's got a lot of nerves. It's hard to get on his last one, but they were getting on his last one. 
The Israelites were tempting God from an adversarial, fatalistic, contrarian, thumbs-down kind of place. Not a positive, believing, trusting, hoping place. And Hebrews spells it out here saying they were unbelieving, stiff-necked, and hard-hearted. Have you known people in your walk with God, your experience, people who were brothers and sisters in the Lord who one time had a dynamic faith and then they later seemed to be hard-hearted toward the things of God? I can name a few names right now. And it's sad. It's sad to see that happen. Have you known people who once believed God so easily who through some life experience became tainted and their childlike faith corrupted? What happens to people like this? Well, it could be a number of things. Life circumstances bring a great grief or a disappointment. They lose sight of what really matters. Their values become corrupted with the things of the world, any number of things. But the common denominator is that deceitfulness. They're deceived, and it is a sin to God. And so they call it the deceitfulness of sin that enters in and once again takes over their minds and their hearts. Notice what God says about the hearts of the Israelites. Verse 10, Therefore I was angry with that generation and, and said, I said about them, they always go astray in their heart. And whatever you see in anyone else, what you might be convicted of yourself, what you're seeing now is really something that started some time ago, and it started in the heart. And that's where it begins. The will, the seat of your emotions, your, your will, your desires, your hopes and dreams and ambitions, it gets broken. If, you know, if you've been a partaker of Christ and something happens, you get broken in there. That gets torn asunder. And then you begin to live life out of that broken place, out of that lack of faith, out of that distrust. They always, do they, they always go astray? Well, Israel had a history of doing that, if you study them. They always did cycle around to some sort of problem, and it happened in their hearts. So it's, the issue here is not about performance or doing something right or wrong. It's not an issue of behavior. It's an issue of believing. You believe God easily at one time, but now you might feel that your faith is tiring. Perhaps you're wanting God to repeat what He's done in the past, and you, you want to taste that all over again. You want something that may not come. And then you're disappointed because you say, it's just not like it used to be. Just not. Will you believe God and still be in pursuit of Him and His purposes in the next 40 years. I appreciate Larry Southern texted me yesterday, and he said, Pastor, I've read Hebrews 3, and I want you to know I'm ready to cross over with whatever time God gives me. Larry, you and I probably won't be here 40 years from today. Maybe you will. Be up there. We really will cross over them, won't we? <laughs> if you believe, you will act. And he will act too, because you believed. But you must believe God first. Secondly, they really did not know God. Look at the last part of verse 10. And they have not known my ways. We must know him, and we must spend time with him. We must be devouring his word. Let that sweetness of the honeycomb be in our mouth. And in knowing his ways, you will more easily yield to whatever it is he brings to pass, whatever he requires, whatever he asks of you, whatever he drafts you into, you can say yes much easier. Have you ever heard someone tell of a miracle, a, a supernatural event, uh, uh, and, and some experience that would defy nature, and then you hear someone that's hearing that story say, sounds like God to me. Sounds like a God thing. Sounds like God is at work there. If we know the ways of God, we'd be like the farmer's insurance commercial slogan. We've seen a thing or two. 
We've seen a thing or two. We know God. And what we're looking at now looks like a God thing. Let's go. Let's don't hold back. Let's go. So in the next few weeks, you're going to be hearing stories of God's miracles, His faithfulness, His power to change lives and circumstances, and many more wondrous things that He's done over the last 40 years. But we will also be talking about new days, looking forward, crossing over, stepping across into new territory, new vision, taking new ground, defeating new enemies, but all the while enjoying greater blessings. I think you're going to be challenged as a church. I think you're going to be challenged individually to think differently about church, about the kingdom, about your role, and more. It's time to cross over and to conquer some things that we've talked about, but now we have to act upon. I read some commentary. Actually, it was a sermon by John Piper on Hebrews 3. And so there was a paragraph in there that really grabbed me and I was going to use it as it was, but I felt like the Lord wanted me to take it and put some things in it that kind of fit us better. So I've reworked that paragraph. You won't know what's John's and what's mine, except, well, you will know a few things of mine. But I want to read that to you because I think it fits us right here. He started out, if we harden our hearts, that's how he started. If we harden our hearts in the days ahead as we cross over into new territory, conquer new land, if we throw away our confidence and our hope in the Lord to aid us, strengthen us, give us mighty victories in pursuit of new and different ministry than than we have up to now experienced, then we may wander about aimlessly and die in some sort of wilderness. We cannot presume to receive the grace of God for our first 40 years to enjoy all that transpired in that time and not lean into and be satisfied with that same grace to guide us, provide for us, and strengthen us for the next 40 years. Some of us in this room will see that 40 years all the way through. Others of us, as I've said, will not be here to see the completion of that time. But I'm cautioning us all not to harden our hearts in any way Don't dial it back. Don't be fearful, reticent, or anything else as we face new challenges and new exploits. To the younger folks in this room, we need Joshua's. We need Joshua's to be full of faith and step up and lead. To the older folks in this room, we need Caleb's. Men and women who will say, that's my mountain. God's called that to me for me. I put my name on that. I've got my name on a chair at my mother's house right now. I think she knows that. My sisters may not. But my name is under that chair. You say, that chair is mine. No argument. I put it on there. Early 2000s. What's your name on? What is your what is God called? you to be doing. And the sad part about this historical account we've been talking about today, they could have enjoyed everything that God had for them 40 years sooner. We do not want to delay the work of God and the blessing of God. Now let me hit a couple other little things and we're going to close. The failure and folly of unbelief and disobedience. I want to talk about that. And I think you see that, that, a wondering, uh, that wondering about aimlessly was the fruit of their unbelief. But here's the big, bigger picture. Their failure was corporate and it was individually expressed. Their failure was corporate, but it was individually expressed. The entire nation suffered. There was murmuring and there was complaining out of mouths. And there was unbelief expressed and talking, talking, negative, negative, negative. Joshua and Caleb, we know her too. I'm hoping there were some others standing there saying, No, we can take this. We can do this. God said it. Let's believe it. Guess who had to suffer for 40 years? Joshua. 
and Caleb. The men who wanted to go, wanted to believe, who did believe, they suffered. And enough people refusing to believe, to cross over in faith, will cause those who want to trust God, who want to believe God, it will cause them to come up short on God's best. They'll just not attain it because it's a corporate move. And there's a power in corporate. There's a power in the group. That's why unity is such, such a big deal in the kingdom of God. So I encourage you, don't be one of those people. Don't cause others to be shortchanged in their blessing. Joshua and Caleb had nowhere else to go. And sadly, what we see in our day is that people can move elsewhere. Just be quite honest. I'm, I'm saying some hard things here. Somebody who says, I'm, I'm ready to go with God. I want to do some things in the kingdom. I want to be a part of what God's doing. They, they'll move away. They'll move out. And they'll go elsewhere. I don't want to see that anymore. We call a stop to that. Our future as a congregation will be based on your individual belief and your subsequent action. You have a responsibility and you play an important role. Don't think that you don't. You do. Everybody, everybody plays an important role for good or otherwise. Now let me close on a more positive note here. Do you remember what God told the Israelites the land would be like? The land would be flowing with milk and honey. Yes, that's the answer. There were some more specific things he said in Deuteronomy chapter 6 that tells what that milk and honey was going to be looking like. And I'm sure there was even far more than he listed there. Let's look at Deuteronomy 6, uh, 10 through 12. It says, The Lord your God will soon bring you into the land He swore to give you when He made a vow to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's a land with large, prosperous cities that you did not build. The houses will be richly stocked with goods you did not produce. You will draw water from cisterns you did not dig. And you will eat from vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. Can you imagine going in and having an entire city that it took scores of years and tons of labor to have this prosperous city, and they go in and they, they take it for themselves. It's theirs to live in. Houses stocked with riches, and they were able to just move right in. There was actually a law in the Mosaic Law that showed you how to cleanse that house before you could move in. But they did it. They ate out of gardens. They had livestock. They had so many things that they never had to turn their hand to receive, to, to, to build it. All they had to do was conquer the land, which was a task in and of itself. But once it was there, once it was done, it was theirs. And I believe it comes out of the hand of a good father. He knew they needed rewards and reasons to take all this, these nations out in Canaan, but it was much more than that. He wanted to bless them immensely. It's the Father's heart to bless His children. It's His nature to lavish love on us. It was His joy to help these once nomadic people turn slaves, now wandering in the wilderness, to have a permanent home where they could raise their kids. They could have a job. And they could prosper. But also... More importantly, to have a relationship with Him. Because look at the end of, of uh, Deuteronomy there. It says, do not forget the Lord who rescued you. When you eat and you're full and you're fat off the land, don't forget, it's me. It's me. I want to be with you. I want to be walking in the land with you. So what might the future look like for us? Well, we can't know exactly what the mind of the Lord is in store for our family here. But we can glean some things from the Scripture, I think, that will give us a general sense for what He wants for any church, for this church. Let's start here, Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope.
We know that God has plans that include goodness, blessing, and joy. Let's just assume that he intends to offer that to us in some form or fashion. So here are some things that I think God intends for any believing church family, and I think it's in store for us. It's going to sound old, but it's new. I'm hoping you see that. People will be saved coming to know Christ every week of the year because we are a church that knows how to confidently share the gospel with others. We have no fear in sharing Christ because we are abandoned to Him and we are compassionate toward them. And we want them to have the same vibrant relationship we have in Christ. And consequently, we'll see people being baptized maybe every Sunday. Does anybody want that besides me? These new converts will have to be discipled. They're going to be discipled by you and me. We'll be pouring our life into them and watch them grow and mature. And in short order, they'll be discipling others who in turn disciple others and on and on. We'll build a discipleship culture that's life-giving. Many generations will come to be fed and grow in the atmosphere and the environment we develop and foster. We'll see people saved that we do not even know them. But a fourth generation disciple out won them to Christ and brought them here. I think that's a land flowing with milk and honey for this church. We will lay such a foundation of evangelism and discipleship that will foster Tremendous growth for us. We're not going to try to proselytize people from another church. No, we want to build a church out of brand new converts. We will be touching our community in acts of kindness. And by the way, some of these things are already started. They just had not gotten full stride yet. Thank you, Daryl, for heading up our touch points ministry. It's got to even be, be greater. It will be greater. I want to show you this. And I don't have... This, this is a little uh, report that comes out of Church of the Highlands, out of uh, Alabama. They have a team there they call the Legacy Team, and it's people who have been called to be givers in their ministry above and beyond what most people can do. And those people give and give and give, and they have a way of keeping record of the influence of the giving. And I just want to share some with you. They do disaster relief. They impact their community, and down in that area, hurricanes and storms come through all the time. So it's important for them. They even keep a record of how many hours they use chainsaws. 4,800 hours in 2020. Hours operating heavy equipment, 980. Total hours served on disaster relief effort, 6,100 hours. The monetary value of cleaning up debris in 2020... $1.16 million. So whatever it would have cost to hire a contracting company to come in and clean that up, they they were able to put a value on it, and their, their people went out and did it. They impact a community. They touch it by getting out there and serving. Meals served with Mercy Chefs. So they have people who like to cook, and they're part of a team called Mercy Chefs, and they prepared 250,000 meals. In 2020. Now you have to understand, this is a big church with a lot of satellite campuses and all those, they combine the numbers. The numbers I don't care about. It's the doing of something that impacts the community. What if we did 1% of some of this? What if we did? And our touch points ministry grew to where Shelby County and Shelbyville and wherever God sends us, maybe even out of state, lives are touched. It would make a difference. These are the new challenges we're kind of facing. Uh, They have prison ministry. Decisions made for Christ in 2020. 2,559 inmates gave their heart to Christ. Average weekly attendance in their prison worship service, 1,298. They're in like 21 correctional facilities every Sunday. Every Sunday. I could go on for more. I'm I'm out of time. You get my point. God has some things for us. Our worship services will be full. 
Worship and singing will even be more robust and so encouraging to all of those who experience it. Preaching will be even more life-giving. The anointed word given by anointed men will impact our world and people's lives. It will change people's lives and be permanently transformed. People will serve in the house and outside the house. Their spiritual gifts will flourish and make room for them in this body. Young families will see their children prosper and grow deeply in their faith. We will provide training in parenting and supply the much-needed support for the contemporary nuclear family. We will know the times and the seasons and not be out of reach and out of touch with the needs of our generation. Finances will flow to help the hurting. Uh, The work of God's kingdom will be financed through generosity and wise stewardship. Individual families will govern their finances more wisely and the, king, the kingdom finances will, will even prosper more. Our intercession for the world will be effectual, fervent, and break down the strongholds that are ever-increasing in modern-day lives. People will be leaders and servants, rising up, eager to take their place and find great fulfillment in doing that. Men will be strong and courageous in the things of God, that they will be outspoken and say what God is saying in the hour. Homes will teach their children of his ways because values and priorities are becoming aligned with the kingdom's values. Joy and hope and laughter and the shalom of God will be hallmarks of our experience. Whether we're together here or apart in the world, a spirit and a culture of honor and encouragement will rise up so that men's hearts no longer grow faint and weary. The atmosphere will thicken with God's presence, His glory will be on us in greater measure, and we will hear people continue to say, and notice I say continue because we've heard it said, when we drive up on this campus, we feel God. God is in this place. I just heard it two weeks ago. Somebody's saying, God is in this place. You can feel His presence here. Wouldn't you like for it to thicken, to be ever more heavy upon us and bring the joy He brings? We will be so secure in our faith And nothing will cause us to fear or to waver in the face of opposition. We will fight the good fight of faith in and by love, and we will lay our lives down for each other. Could you guys uh, go ahead and start a little some music for me? Does that sound like a land flowing with milk and honey to you as a church? You may say, that sounds like a lot of work to me. Yeah, there are going to be some giants. And they've kept us at bay in some of those things. God's calling us to slay those giants. Put them on the ground forever and evermore and prosper in these things. We can begin to say yes in robust faith. Would you stand with me? And I want you to start shaking off the sleepy uh, and get your blood up because I want you to say something. I want you to make some declaration with me here. Pastor Stephen's going to have more of this kind of thing the Sunday he preaches on the 21st, but I have this one. This is something we close out our growth track three with. Go ahead and put up that first paragraph. Get ready. I want you to say this in faith. I want you to declare it today. And here's what thought I had when I was kind of rehearsing my thoughts today. I've had a couple of times where I remember when Joel would have us make a declaration and I would stop in the middle of it and shut my mouth. And something inside me said, you can't say that. You can't say that. That's not where you are. You're not, you're not in faith in that. And I would shut my mouth and not finish it. Because I couldn't say it. I'm saying to you today, go ahead and say it. Faith before feeling. Faith before unbelief. Speak it out and release God. And I want you to say it like you're talking to somebody across the football field. All right? So say these three paragraphs with me. Let's go. Because God has called me to serve my generation, I will value worship over wealth, we over me, character over comfort, service over status, and God's purposes over possessions, popularity, and pleasure. To my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, I say, however, whenever, wherever, and whatever you ask me to do, my answer in advance is yes. 
Wherever you lead, whatever the cost, I'm ready anytime, anywhere. I want to be used by you in such a way that on that final day, I'll hear you say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Come on in and let the eternal party begin. Can you say amen to that? Hallelujah. We trust. Come on, let's sing. trust in our God, oh, and through His unfailing love, we will not be shaken, we will not be shaken, we will not be shaken.